The Lord Jesus came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. And that is much the story of His life. Turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Jesus came as the Messiah to His own people, the Jews. He loved them. He said in chapter 13, verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. Jesus wanted to see Israel restored to God in His lifetime, but they would not have it. They rejected Him. They despised Him. And the reason that we know that the nation as a whole despised and rejected Him was because the main city, the capital, Jerusalem, was at the heart of the nation. That Jerusalem was represented by its religious leaders. And what did the religious leaders think of Jesus? Most of them were threatened by Him, by the following that He was gathering, and the fact that people were turning away from the law of Moses and to Christ. And so they wanted Him dead. And so the final part of Jesus' public ministry is marked by severe opposition and hostility even by His own people. And here in chapter 14, Jesus is speaking with some of these people who who are hostile toward Him, these religious leaders. And He uses this as an opportunity to show them where they really stand before God. So let me read this passage for you beginning in verse 1, Luke chapter 14. This is the Word of God. It happened that when He went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching Him closely. And there in front of Him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And He took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then, in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be a repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man was having a big dinner, and he invited many. 
And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out in the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. Jesus is showing here what mature Christians look like. Mature Christians know what is of greatest value. And He shows that in four different ways. Four, we could call them episodes here in chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. Mature Christians, first of all, know mercy. They know mercy. Mature Christians don't reinterpret the commands of God in a way that neglects their responsibility to show mercy. Verses 1 through 6. Jesus is meeting here in the home of a Pharisee with some of the people who are likely His greatest opponents. And notice what they're doing at the end of verse 1. They were watching Him closely, probably in order to trap Him. They're eating a meal together. This meal would have been prepared the day before since they're meeting on the Sabbath day. They were not allowed to prepare the meal that day. And Jesus uses this opportunity to show the Pharisees that they don't really understand the Sabbath law and its intent. What He wants them to understand is that the Sabbath law was not meant to harm people. It was meant for the good of the people, right? Jesus said this, the Sabbath, was, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And He would say later in Mark, Mark's Gospel, and the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. But, but the, per, the point there is that the Sabbath is not supposed to be some kind of a, a religious crutch for us something that slows us down as people under the law of Moses. He's saying this is something that's supposed to be for our good. But like with any command, we can end up adding rules to it in order to protect us from breaking that command. So if the command's out here, keep, you know, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, the Pharisees have developed and the rabbis over the centuries have developed all of these rules that protect them from going out there, which to them, that's, you know, that's a sin, and it was under the law of Moses, And so they set up all these other fences. And if anyone crosses any of these fences, then they're breaking that law, which is not true. And Jesus is trying to show them, listen, the sin's out there. You've made up all these rules back here, and now you're not even able to obey the rule. You don't understand the purpose of it. And what can happen over time is that with the command, we can try to protect ourselves from breaking that command, and we forget the purpose of the command, and we can end up binding our conscience So that if we break the rules that we have attached to this command, then we feel like we've broken the command. And Jesus is saying, no. You're you're training or teaching your conscience wrong. So you need to understand properly what the Sabbath is there for. In order to show them that, that they don't understand and apply the law of the Sabbath properly, He does what He often does on the Sabbath, which is He heals a man, verses 2-6. through 
Verse 2, we see this man has dropsy. Maybe it was one of the Pharisee's servants. Dropsy is a condition that is caused by liver or kidney failure that allows fluid to build up in a person's body. And just like in chapter 13, verse 10, where we saw the woman who had the back problem, she was doubled over and apparently her back had been fused together from being like that for 18 years. That lady was not in danger of dying on that Sabbath day. That was something that could have waited. If Jesus were going to heal her, which He did, He could have waited till Sunday instead of doing it on Saturday, the Sabbath day. And the same thing is true here. This man... This is not a life-threatening condition. He probably had this condition for weeks, months, or years, and it would probably eventually lead to his death, but at this point he wasn't in danger of dying on the Sabbath day. But, but, but you see what happened is they have set up this rule. The rule is, by God, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then all these laws that you're not supposed to go a certain distance, you're not supposed to do a certain amount of work, and so on. And then they've set up all these rules that have said... Listen, the only way that a person or a doctor can help someone medicinally is if that person has a life-threatening injury. Okay, so like when you have the guy with the withered hand in Mark's Gospel, okay, that was not a life-threatening problem. And yet Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. What he's showing is that, that, the, that these man-made rules that have been set up to protect against the God-made rule didn't understand really what the God-made rule was and how to apply it. So he's saying, yes, this is not life-threatening, but let me show you how you disobey your own command. Let me show you how you've kind of set up, compartmentalized your religiosity. And and, uh, so he uses an example here we'll see in just a second. He teaches them before he heals them and he teaches them after he heals them. He teaches them before by asking a question, verse 3. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So, he wants to teach them something that it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, but he wants them to say it. So, he does it in the form of a question. But notice verse 4, they kept silent. They were unwilling to respond because they had seen Jesus make a fool of other people and... Anybody else who tried to respond with some pious answer, Jesus would cut them down and show them their foolishness. So he doesn't wait around for an answer. He heals the man at the end of verse 4, sends the man on his way, and then he teaches them after he heals the man in verses 5 and 6. And again, he does it in the form of a question to get them to think. Notice what he asks them. Verse 5, Which one of you will have a son or ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day. And the reason that they would help an ox or a son who fell into a well was because they recognized that to some degree the purpose of the Sabbath was actually for the good of the man. It was to help them to set aside time for the sake of worshiping God on every Saturday. And the point of the law... They, they understood it to some extent. And Jesus agreed with the application of that law. That is, you know, when you have an ox or a son fall into a well, you help him out. And I agree with you. That's right. You should do that. You shouldn't leave him in there and say, see you on Sunday. No, you get him out. Because you recognize that the purpose of the command is for the good of the people. 
And so here's the application. He doesn't actually come out and say it, but the application is this. If it's okay for you to go and help an ox or a son out of a well, and it is, then is it not okay to help someone like this woman with the back problem for 18 years? Is it not okay to help this man who has all of these uh, fluids building up in his body who needs to be healed? If it was decent to help an animal and a son and it was economically beneficial, then why would it not be beneficial and right to help a suffering human? You see, Jesus was showing something about the law that they should have already understood. The law was to teach people how to do something. Let's think about this for a second. The point of the law as a whole, if we just sum up the whole law, we could sum it up with two commands that we know very well. And what are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why did God give us the law of Moses? Why did He give Israel the law of Moses? So that they would understand what it looks like to love God with all their heart. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know what it looks like to love your neighbor? Follow the law. Okay, so if that's the purpose of the whole law, what would be a, a, a purpose of the Sabbath law? It would have the same dual purpose. It was to teach them to love God with all their heart and to love their neighbor. But what happened over time is that the law became a form of displaying piety and not a way to display love. They, they missed the point. This is what we can do, by the way. Okay, we're not under the law of Moses, but this is what we can do when it comes to the commands of Scripture. And we can start to see them as just a list of rules. And as long as I stay submissive to all the rules of the Scripture, I'm okay. While our hearts are far from God, while we're not actually obeying the laws for the sake of, of honoring God and loving people. Well, they respond in verse 6 really with no response. They didn't say anything. Because, again, if they said anything, they would indict themselves. Mature Christians know what is of greatest value. First, they know mercy. Secondly, they know humility. Mature Christians know humility. Mature Christians don't live for themselves, verses 7 through 11. Not only did Jesus recognize that they were applying the law improperly, but He also recognized that their desire was to take the best seat at the table. In the ancient Near East, the person of greatest honor would sit at one end of the table. And then the people who were second in honor and third in honor would sit to his right and his left. And then all the others would kind of fan out around him. So if you were on the other end of the table, you were of least honor. So apparently what's happening at this particular dinner is that the Pharisee invites all these people and they're all fighting for this second and third seat. They want to be next to the host, the man of greatest honor. And Jesus uses their actions as an object lesson to teach them about humility. Humility before man and humility before God. And here's what He tells them. When you come to a feast, don't take the best seat. Verse 8. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by Him. And then verse 9, And he who invited you both will come and say, Give 
your place to this man. And then in the disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. You can kind of picture someone rushing to the seat, making sure that they were there first. And then the host says, you know, we're actually saving that seat for someone more important than you. Okay, this is reserved. So, can you go down to the end of the table? And kind of with his tail between his legs, he walks while everybody's watching. He walks down to the end of the table. And Jesus says, if you take the best seat and someone of greater honor arrives, you're going to be humiliated. Instead, what He says to do, verse 10, is to take the worst seat. When you're invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, He may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you'll have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Take the worst seat so that the uh, the worst thing that can happen is that you're left there in that seat. But nobody notices and nobody looks on you in shame. But the best thing that can happen is that you could move up to a seat of greater honor and that's more likely what is go- going to happen. So what is Jesus teaching here? Is He teaching us a backwards way of getting what we want? You know, if you really want the best seat, start out in the worst and you're going to end up getting what you want. Of course, He's not teaching that. I would say that that's a false humility. Jesus would not teach anything like that. I think He's teaching the wisdom of genuine humility through this analogy. He's saying, instead of being humiliated, be humble. Okay? Because if you live your life in order to exalt yourself, you're going to be like King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar, like this one who took the best seat. You're going to be humiliated. So instead, live your life not in order to exalt yourself, but to humble yourself before other people. That's what he's teaching. He's teaching genuine humility. Because those who exalt themselves will will be humiliated. And I think there's something greater at stake than simply how others will see you at a wedding feast. You know, it's more than you're going to get a few crooked looks from people. Man, they really look down upon you. They're, They're going to remember this for the rest of your life. The truth is, we can't force other people to honor us. Honor is awarded to those who are genuinely humble. But there's something greater at stake, and that is that God is the one who recognizes your heart and how you're acting. Okay, so if you're living your life in order to make sure that everybody knows about you and sees you and watches you do all these things, you're going to be humiliated. And even if no one sees that, even if you never come to a place you're like, man, that was a really embarrassing situation. I should have not I should not have put myself in that situation. God will see it. And you know what God does? Look at verse Look at verse eleven. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, mature Christians understand humility and do not live for their own self exaltation. And I think that this is talking about more than just going to a wedding feast and getting embarrassed in front of a few friends. This is talking about God embarrassing you at the judgment. And the reason I say that is because Peter uses very similar language in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. That last phrase, at the proper time, is not talking about in this lifetime. 
I think it's talking about in the next lifetime. That at some point, God will exalt you. Let God do that in His timing. The converse of that is, if you exalt yourself in this lifetime, at the proper time, God will humiliate you at the judgment. You see, God is just and He will not let the wicked go unpunished and He will eventually judge them. And so those who are not humble, those who are living for themselves, who are all about self-exaltation, will be recognized by God and be rewarded negatively by God. They will be punished for all of eternity. Mature Christians recognize the, the great danger in self-exaltation, in pride. They recognize that, that we must be people of humility. Number three, mature Christians recognize what is of greatest value, mercy, humility, and then three, generosity. Verses 12 to 14, generosity. See, if we are going to be mature Christians, we're going to live for greater rewards. Greater rewards than what this life has to offer. The purpose of inviting a guest to your home is not so that they can reciprocate. Okay, so that's what that's the main principle here. Don't do it in order that, you know, they invite me back. I really want them to invite me over their house, so I'm going to invite them over my house first. And Jesus says, if that's your goal, inviting people over your house, you don't get it. Look at the text, verse twelve. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. And the the understanding is that they all have the means to return the favor. And that's what it says. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return. And then if, if you want a repayment, that's your repayment, that they're going to invite you back. But when you give the reception, verse 13, invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The purpose of inviting a guest to your home is not so that they can reciprocate the favor. My in-laws are some of the most hospitable people that I know. And there are dozens of people that they have invited over their house for a meal and fellowship. And those people have never returned the favor. And do you know what they do because of that? They cross those people off their list. They're never coming back again. No, that's not what they do. They keep on inviting them, don't they? And they keep on inviting these people who come time after time and never return the favor, but that's okay. Because that's not the goal, is to get them to be invited back over the other person's house. It's to serve them. It's to be hospitable. And Jesus is saying, that is the way it ought to be. Invite people for a meal, even if or especially if they can't return the favor. Now, to be clear, okay, we have a command here in verse 12, and Jesus says, when you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends. And so you might be thinking, I can never invite my friends to my house again. Okay, I can only invite poor people and people I hate. Okay, that's not the point of what he's saying. He's not, he's not condemning that. He's trying to peel back the layers of their heart and our hearts so that they can see what is inside. And he's saying if the goal is reciprocation, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You know, I'm going to invite this guy who's really rich. He's got a really nice house. And if I invite him over my house, maybe he'll invite me over his. Do it for the right reasons, I think, is the point of this this uh, this pair of uh, this uh, command. 
Notice what happens when you are generous to people who cannot return the favor. Verse 14. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. Now, if we just stopped right there, it would be like, what? We're blessed because they can't repay us? There's no blessing in that. I mean, I'm out some money and time and effort that I put into having them over. But notice the last phrase there in verse 14. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. If you do deeds in this lifetime that can be repaid in this lifetime, then that is your reward. That is your repayment. If you're doing it so that people will recognize you and you'll get served back, then that's your reward. Enjoy it while you have it. But if you do things that cannot be repaid in this lifetime, you know what God's going to do? He's not going to forget that. And He will repay you at the resurrection of the lifetime of the righteous in the next lifetime. So, mature Christians understand this. They live for greater rewards. They don't live for the, the, the tangible rewards that we see in this lifetime, you know, going over somebody's house. Mature Christians are generous. They, are, they, they understand, first of all, mercy, and then humility, and then thirdly, generosity. And number four, mature Christians understand obedience. They understand what is of greatest value. They understand obedience. Verses 15 to 24, mature Christians know what the Father desires. They understand what He's ultimately looking for. Since Jesus was condemning their actions and attitudes left and right, one of the guests tried to lighten the mood, I think, with a view toward unity. Okay? Wow, it's getting kind of tense in here. Jesus is saying all these things against us as religiously. I mean, we're the leaders of the religion of the day. And he's saying all these things that are making us squirm a little bit. And so let me say something that everybody will agree with, including Jesus. And notice what he says. Verse 15. The end of the verse. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is probably a statement about how privileged the Jews were since they were the ones who had access to the kingdom from the time of the Old Testament all the way to through the time of Christ. They were the ones who had access to the kingdom and so blessed is everyone who makes it into the kingdom. They're not thinking about Gentiles at this point. They're not thinking about the low, the weak. We're going to look at that here in just a second. And so he would expect everybody to agree with that, including Jesus. But instead of agreeing with him, Jesus responds with a parable and says, no, that's not the case. It's not just going to be you Jews who make it into the kingdom. And he gives a parable of a feast by invitation only. A man has a big dinner and invites all of his closest friends. Scholars suggest that in the ancient Near East, an initial invitation was sent to guests. So long before the, the, the feast would take place, there would be an initial invitation sent, and then people would respond, RSVP, based on whether or not they wanted to come. Once they responded, then the host would know who was planning to come, and then he would send another invitation that would tell when to come. Okay, so that there, were, there were two invitations effectively. And I think that's what's happening here in verse 17. It's actually the second invitation. A man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave. Okay, so now it's an hour. It's time for the dinner to start. And he sends out all those people that said, we're going to come. Okay, it's time to come. My master, the servant's going to go out and say, my master said it's time to come. You're welcome to come for this big feast. 
But in verses 18 and following, we have a surprising twist, don't we? That these people who had once RSVP'd and said, yes, I'm coming. They didn't end up coming. Verse 18. We have these three excuses. Verses 18 to 20. They all like began to make excuses. The first one said, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. First excuse is property evaluation. If you purchased a property it already belonged to you, why do you need to go look at the property? This guy says, I, sorry, I can't come. I've got other things to do. Livestock evaluation, verse 19. Effectively says, listen, I, I can take these five yoke of oxen and i got to check them out, see if they, they're okay for me. It would be like us buying a car and saying I need to go test drive it after the fact. Okay, it's an excuse. And then the marriage evaluation, verse 20. You know, I just got married. Got to spend some time with my wife. Not gonna, not gonna come to the to the party that I said I was once going to come. All three of these reasons are merely excuses. We know that because verse 18, they all began to make excuses, and then the first two say, "Consider me excused." The point is they don't have time for what is of greatest importance. And these are the same kind of excuses that people give today for why they can't enter the kingdom. You know, we have to look over our land. We have to look at our animals. We have to check out all of our earthly goods. We need to spend time with family. And yet, if you talk to those same people who are rejecting the kingdom of God about, hey, i got two Super Bowl tickets for you on the 50-yard line. Or, I've got a trip for two to Paris. And it's free. It's for you. You can take it. Or, you know, I, 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 uh, I'm giving you a free trip to Africa for a safari, to, to go on a safari. You think those same people are making excuses? I don't, can't really do the kingdom of God now. I've got my land and my family and my animals I've got to take care of. You think they would turn those kinds of things down? The truth is that we prioritize what is most important to us. That's the idea of priorities. We prioritize what is most important. And for these three people, entering the kingdom, following Jesus, was not of greatest value. So what does the Master do about his dinner that now has very uh, a very uh, empty space Many places still to fill. What he does is he makes it less exclusive. Before it was for these dinner guests that he had selected friends. Now he's going to open it up. And he's going to open it up more than to just the Jewish elite. That's who I think the friends are here. Notice verse 16, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many in the dinner hour, he sent a slave to say to those who had been invited. See, verse 15, the man was saying, Blessed is he who can eat in the kingdom of God. I think that's talking about the Jews. And Jesus is saying, listen, the invitation was sent out to Jews and they've rejected it. That's why I began with, He came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. John 1.11 The very next verse, But as many as received Him. So now He opens up the invitation. He says to His slave, listen, 
go out and get the outcasts. Verse 21. End of the verse. Go out at once in the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, crippled, and blind and lame. This is probably referring to the Jewish outcasts. People that were not of the upper crust of the Jewish society. People that the upper crust of the Jewish society would hate and despise. The servant says, I've already gone out. The Jews won't come. And I've actually already gone and asked all the outcasts too. And still there's room. The implication is that some of them accepted. And so what does the master do? Verse 22. Master, what you commanded is done, the servant says. And still there's room. And in verse 23, the master said, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come so that my house may be filled. Listen, if, if the Jews, the upper crust of the Jews aren't going to come and share in my kingdom to this invitation-only feast, and if the lower parts of the Jewish society aren't going to come and share in my feast, they're not going to fill up the place, the room where I am having this feast, then open it up to everyone. Open it up even to the Gentiles, the people outside the Jewish people. Why? Look at the end of verse 23 again. So that my house may be filled. I think the point of this parable is clear. God has a greater desire to see the lost come to Him than we do. God has a greater desire to see the lost come to Him than the lost have a desire to come to God. God is ready with open arms. He's just opening up the invitation. Listen, everyone, I'm opening up the feast to you. You just need to come. And people, time after time, are saying, I can't do it. Got too much stuff going on right now. So what does the Master do about his dinner that has a room that, is still, that still has empty seats? He, he opens it up to everyone. Notice what happens to the original targeted guest, verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. The people who said, remember that first invitation? Yeah, I'm going to come. We RSVP'd. We're planning to come. Jesus says they're not actually going to have a taste of the dinner at all. They're not welcome at the dinner. The Jews may argue on the final day that they were those original targeted guests. They were the ones who had the pre-invitation. They were the ones that had the exclusive invitation with all the beautiful print on it. They weren't the ones who just got it by word of mouth. They had their names right on the envelope. Come to God's kingdom. And they may argue that, hey, we were the original targeted guests, and so God, You have to let us in. Uh, We know Jesus. We know the prophets. But what will Jesus say to them on that day, very bluntly? Depart from Me, you evildoers. I do not know you. It reminds me of the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21. A father had two sons. He said to the one, go work in my vineyard. And he said, I'm not going to do it. But then he regretted it and went anyway. And the other son said, I will work in your vineyard. But he never came. 
In the application, Jesus says, which of the two did the will of the Father? The one who promised, hey, I'm coming. I'm coming to your banquet. I'm coming to work in your vineyard. He never shows up. Or the one who says, I want no part of you. But then later says, I'm coming. I'm here. See, God is not compelled by our unfulfilled promises. You get no merit for making promises that you don't intend to keep or you simply will not keep. God is looking for people who actually will serve Him, not who just talk about serving Him. Mature Christians know what is of greatest value to God. They are merciful, humble, generous, and obedient. We can summarize all these things by saying that these people who know what the Father desires are redeemed people. They are accepted people. They are people who will enter the kingdom of God. God has graciously, friends, offered to us a seat at His table and all that He asks is that we would simply believe Him. And that we would be willing to live according to His desires. And here are four of them. That we would live mercifully, humbly, generously, and obediently. Those who respond to Christ's invitation will become His disciples. And they are going to enjoy sitting at the table at that banquet on the final day. But there will be many who fail to respond and who will have no part in the kingdom. Friends, the invitation is now. The time for us to respond to the invitation is today. Jesus is calling. He's saying, Come! The banquet is open. The doors are open, but there's coming a day when they will close. At that point, it will be too late. No matter how much you say, well, you know, I was intending to come. Or, I I got the invitation. Jesus will say, I'm sorry. I don't know you. Our rejection of Christ in this lifetime carries eternal consequences but our acceptance of Christ also will receive eternal consequences positively, won't it? That Christ will, will uh, God will exalt us who have humbled ourselves in this lifetime and said, God, not my way, but yours. And I'm here to follow you. I'm, I'm here to do your will with the right purpose, the right heart. And that's the kind of people that God will take pleasure in in uh, fellowshipping with for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, help us never to tire the great love that You have for us and that Your Son showed to us by dying for us. Help us to continue to take great joy and pleasure in our salvation and to recognize the seriousness of obeying today, of being merciful and generous and uh, and uh, humble today. Lord, we, we want to be accepted by You. We know that those things don't earn our salvation, but they certainly are evidences that You have changed us. And so we work and strive for those things with all of our might. Give us the strength to do that for Your Spirit. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here who has not trusted Christ, that You would help them to see the great invitation that's opened up to them. And I pray that they would come to Christ today. That You would be accepting of them today and for all of eternity. Thank You for Your mercy on us. 
Thank You for the example of Jesus. And we're thankful that, that we can live to please You. That our lives are lived uh, with a great purpose now. One where You accept our obedience as a fragrant offering to You because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we come to You on the basis of what He has done and pray in His name. Amen.